Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am really delighted today to be talking to Peggy Dulong. Peggy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Megan. I feel like we've waited a little while to get to finally meet, but I know this is going to just be such a heartwarming conversation. You and I are both clinicians. We're sort of trained in, I think, some of the similar modalities and have different ways that we're serving grieving populations. The first question I like to ask folks is when they're on the podcast is just what brings you into the, into this space, into the world of grief and loss? Yes, it was not planned. It, it was my own tragedy that brought me into the grief world. When I was 26 years old, I was engaged to a wonderful man. Everything was going well. I was applying to graduate school. We were planning our wedding. And what appeared to be overnight, he developed a lump on the side of his neck. And I know I had just had a pit in my stomach when he showed me and I imagined my life without him. I had a premonition that it was not good. And unfortunately, he had a very very aggressive form of cancer. And he was told that without treatment, he would have died in two weeks. And with treatment, he survived seven months. And it was during that time that I discovered the power of gratitude and was just thrust into this grief world when no one ever really close to me had died before. And here was my person. And it was just awful. So I moved from my apartment that I shared with him back home to be with my parents. Thankfully, they were nearby. And it was so grateful to be back in with my loving parents and the childhood bedroom I grew up in. And six weeks later, my father died. So my mother and I were living together. I was 26. She was 52. Two young widows where the beginning of that year, they were alive and doing well. And just it was unbelievable what had happened in, in the course of the year. My mother and I were able to rebuild our lives. I'll be celebrating 25 years of marriage next year. My mother, 24 years. Um, she actually met her husband at the bereavement group. I dragged her to. So life is good again, but it really was a very challenging time. And I feel that I can really help people with the things that that helped me and, and sharing that. Yeah. What was your fiance's name and what was your dad's name? Scott and Bill. Scott was my fiance and Bill was my dad. Wow. I mean, that kind of compound loss is stunning to just hear. And I'm thinking about what 26 year olds are normally doing, right? I mean, it varies probably across the country and across cultures, but it's not generally burying life partners and also honestly burying dads. I mean, that's a young age also to lose your father. It was very young and and so tragic and unexpected. But the amazing story was that well, my father was a psychiatrist, so he was very comfortable with talking about feelings and just a wonderful, warm person. And we were, I remember one day we were sitting on the edge of my um, bed in my bedroom talking about grief and his future son-in-law was more like a son to him. So he was going through his own grief and he was supporting me. And he just said out of the blue, you know, if I have it my way, I'm going to die on a chairlift. And I said, dad, why a chairlift? I know you love to ski, but maybe you're skiing and you hit a tree, right. but you're still you're skiing. And he said, no, a chairlift. That's where I feel closest to God, breathing in the cool mountain air, most at peace. And two weeks later, my father died on a chairlift. And the fact that we were talking about it 
and that he shared that with me is unbelievable. So it was so comforting for me to then share that with my mother, as well as the entire ski community at the mountain where this happened, because the ski patrol was devastated. And the lift attendant who met him at the top and saw him slumped over and knew that something was going on, a very you know young man having to deal with that was you know trauma for him. So to be able to share that with all of these people was... Ugh. I can't, I, I can't and can completely imagine the gift of actually having those words to be able to say, this is what he would have wanted. Exactly. You know, it's, it's, I, you know, when I think about it, it's really incredible. And I'm a, I'm a writer. I write everything down. I'm a journaler. I've just been that way since I was 14. I've kept it almost a daily journal. So when this happened, I'm like, this is too good to be true. Did I imagine this? Did it really happen? So I'm so grateful that I had it in writing that that's what he said, because I had like proof. It wasn't just like wishful thinking that this is what he wanted. So right. Because we can construct a narrative, but that, you know, again, sometimes we hear the words that we need to hear. It does also sound like there is some other world mystical sort of knowing that, and I've spoken about this a lot in my podcast because my son couldn't sleep the week before my mother died. And he would say, I'm, I feel like someone's going to die when he was eight at no six at the time. So it sounds like your family also had, or you have some of that also sort of a way of knowing something you can't possibly really know. Oh, absolutely. And then the the day before he died, I was walking with a dear friend who helped me through grief. One of the things that helped me tremendously was this one consistent person walked with me weekly, and she helped contain my grief and helped me process it through walking. It was transformational. But it was during one of those walks, we were walking uphill. And I remember the exact place where I told her that I was fearful of my father dying. I said, I cannot bear another loss. And I've always been worried about my father, we had learned he had a silent heart attack. I'm not sure I was young when we discovered that. And, and he just never did anything about it. He lived, lived his life fully, the most joyful person that I've ever known. And so he just kept living his life and didn't do anything, even though he was a physician and probably knew better, but this was his way. And what a, what a great gift to live life fully and to leave exactly the way that you wish. I can't ask for anything more. You know what I was thinking? Cause we're audio and I mean, we may use some clips for, to advertise this, but we're audio. So I just want to say to the audience that like, if they couldn't hear that you were emotional when you were telling the story, I just want to tell them that you were, and that I am hearing it as I imagine they could also be because that's how grief is that you can have a parent literally die the death of their dreams and still feel yourself pulled as you tell a story into the experience of what it's like to lose them and love them all at once. And I just say that because there's some confusion always about how do we carry grief over time? And I also want to just say, you know, my mom died in her sleep. She had just seen all six of her children, which was pretty extraordinary considering two of them lived on the West coast and, She had visited her brother. She had seen her best friend who was a Monsignor. I mean, it was a pretty extraordinary and she died, you know, in her sleep with her, a rosary in her hand. There's not a possibility of a more beautiful death for her. 
it doesn't change the fact that the person that finds your dad on the chairlift, the people who have to attend to him, that they, that's the most beautiful death your dad could have ever imagined. And we're, he deserved that. And my mom deserved the death that she got, but that's not the end of the story for everybody. Right. 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 And it's really amazing that, you know, this was in 1994 and because I was so grief stricken when my father died already dealing with the grief of, of my fiance, I was not in a position to be even asking questions. It just mattered to me, like how he died, what happened, and I didn't need any details. Something inspired me last year to get the details. 27 years later, I wanted to find out the names of the people that helped him that day and to thank them and to learn a little bit more. So I got onto the Facebook group of this mountain and I just put it out there. I said, if anybody was there that day, has any information for me, I would love to get some names and, and learn a little bit more about what happened to my father. And the outpouring of support and information was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Somebody even sent me a digital copy of the newspaper clipping from that day. So I was able to learn the exact ski run that my father was brought down on a sled after he had passed away and then go visit that place last year by myself. And then this year I brought my daughters and we call it dad's last run. So even though I'm sure he had left his body by then, his spirit had left his body that I consider that his last run. So I have a place to visit and know that that was where he was at peace. Ah. I mean, it, it, it is, I think, because grievers know each other in the dark, like your story could make me cry, but the, but the, because I can feel it and I just tack it along to, it, it brings up all the stories of my own father's death. And so I'm, I'm just saying that because as people are listening to the story, that's what it's supposed to do. <laughs> that's when we share these stories, that's the purpose. It's supposed to pull up your own human experience with loss But also, Peggy, what you're reminding us or telling us, because some of us maybe have never heard it before, is that this is what it looks like to carry grief lifelong, right? That you have a continued relationship, that you can be angry at your father for dying for 20 years and still come to a different place in year 27, that you can be dissociated. You know, a lot of, I'm sure you have this with clients, but people will come and say to me, I didn't grieve. And, you know, you may not be in an active state of grieving that makes you feel like you are consciously moving through. It doesn't mean you're not grieving, but grief looks different over time. And so, I mean, what an extraordinary thing, you know, you didn't have your daughters when your dad died, like what an extraordinary thing to have them to be inside that memory and that experience and that love with you on dad's last run now. I mean, it's a really beautiful notion. It really was, especially just the sport of skiing. It's it's what brought me to my husband. My sister met her husband through skiing. My brother met his wife through skiing, and it was my father's passion. And it it brought, so our all of our children are very much into skiing. So it was wonderful to pass that on that love for the sport to, with all of our children, and to be in that very same spot with with the grandfather that they never had a chance to meet. Mm-hmm. So it was really special. And I was also given the name of the lift attendant at the top, who the first one to discover my father. And I was able to, you know, now with the internet, I found his mailing address and I sent him a thank you letter. 
for taking care of him. Uh, of course. I'm sure that was incredibly meaningful for him as well. I hope so. I didn't hear back. And so, and I didn't expect to, it I just needed to let him know that it meant so much to me. And, and also if he hadn't heard the story that this was my father's wish, not to, at this age, he was only 58, but it was his wish to leave this world this, that way. And if he hadn't heard that story, I wanted him to know. You know, at 26, 58 doesn't seem that old, but at 48, which is how old I am, 56 feels like a, just a baby. It feels like a baby to, to end your life. Then it's such a complicated, you, you lost your fiance and your dad at this tender time when that's not what people are doing or know how to, you mentioned a moment ago that a friend walked with you. I have a friend who walks with me and I understand exactly what you're talking about, sort of the stability and the moving through. What other things, I mean, how does one bear the story you're describing? Well, what somehow I knew intuitively that I needed to face it head on. I, I, knew that the only way for me through was to feel deeply. Like that's the kind of person that I am. I'm an empath. I simply feel deeply. And for me, that was the way through. So people were offering all these different things to, to help me to kind of get rid of my pain where I knew I needed to feel my pain. So I did everything to feel it. Nature was a tremendous place for me to heal. Being alone, walking with that dear friend, journaling was so incredibly helpful just writing, pouring everything out onto paper. I had a therapist. I was in a bereavement group. I did everything. I read all the books. What was really helpful for me was to read other stories written by other memoirs written by widows to trust that I could have love and be happy again. It, I needed to see that. Yeah. Right. That's the hope. I think about this a lot. I talk about it a lot that I think being able to see somebody several miles down the road who can turn back and say, I get exactly where you are. I know it feels like you will not survive this. I felt the same way. I promise. I can't tell you how, but you will, that there's hope on this side. And that I use that as a phrase sometimes with, with my clients. I say like, I know, I know you do not believe that you will be able to find a, a life with new footprints but I just want you to borrow on my 23 years of experience and my love and care for you. I just believe that you can. So just borrow on mine, just lean on mine and keep going. Just keep doing it because it is inconceivable in those it, early I, days. It, it was. And I remember another conversation with my father. I, I, I believed everything my father said. He was a man of integrity and I made him promise me that I would be happy again. And he did. And, and he knew that my fiance, Scott, would want me to be happy and to be eventually find love again. And so hearing my father say those words and promise me that I would be happy again, I, I believed him. And then when he died shortly after, it, I, it was like I kept hearing that in my ear as a just a, as a whisper that it was a hope that I held on to. There were some days that hope was all that I had, but I really, it was it became more profound when I read the stories of other widows. And, and that's why I work 
with a lot of widows because they see what I've been through and just seeing where I am at today provides them with hope without even saying a word. So that's really, I'm drawn to working with widows in particular. Which makes perfect sense to me. And I feel like in the grief world, in the and and my world is the trauma world, you know, I don't think anybody comes into it because they're like, oh, that just seems like an interesting topic that I, you know, I think you're drawn to it because it it calls to you and there's something there for you. And then you kind of discover like who are the people and what are the things that my experience wants to sort of lay bare and let people connect to. So it makes perfect sense to me that with your experience that you would relate and want to guide and sit with people who are saying, but that was supposed to be my life with my life partner. Mm -hmm. That was the life I was going to have. That was... It's going to sound like such an odd question. You lose your partner. You lose your dad. Did you stop working? Did you keep working? Did your friendships stay the same? Did you despise all your friends? Did you cut your hair? Like, how did you make room for this tornado of loss? Those are great questions. And I am extremely fortunate that I was working at the most supportive place at the time. I was working at a hospital-based preschool for children. If you can imagine, they had been kicked out of regular preschool due to violent, aggressive behavior. Preschoolers. I can. So because of the trauma and violence they had experienced in their lives, it was all they knew. So it was a small ratio, six children with three adults. And it was those children who, without them knowing, were supporting me. The things that they said, I had one we had them until they were, they came in at three and till age six. And I had one six-year-old girl who wasn't ready to remove my engagement ring. And she noticed it. And at six, she held onto my hand and said, that's powerful. Your ring is so powerful. And the hugs and kisses and every day, I love you, Miss Peggy. It was just an amazing place to be with, as well as my coworkers. We were all in our mid-20s and they all saw me through it from the announcing my engagement to his diagnosis, through all of his treatment, his death, then my father death, everybody was extremely supportive. And we had the opportunity before work to enjoy coffee every day for at least 15 minutes. We would gather for coffee, talk about our our, our lesson plans for the day, our therapeutic plans with, for the children. So it, it was something that I consistently was able to look forward to. So my work environment was tremendous in my healing. I did take a leave of absence for six weeks. And then when I came back, my supervisor kind of crafted a new job for me where I worked half day, which was exactly what I needed. And I did that for a little while. And then I went to my doctoral program because I had deferred that for a year. The, the day that the oncologist told us that there was nothing left to do that they could do for my fiance and that he was going to die was the day I was supposed to start my doctoral program. So I called up the school and they said, don't worry about it. Your place is here. You don't need to reapply. We will hold it for next year. So that was wonderful. So that I I had a a job working half day and it was perfect timing. I finished at 12 and then I was able to go into New York City for my doctoral program for the other half of the day. So it was almost like just the, 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 not that there's any perfect time for grief, but that time in my life, everything was so supportive. It was set up to be supportive. And I'm so grateful for that, for that. And knowing that my job was ready and, and the school was waiting also. 
It's so extraordinary what you've just described, because I feel like it's a masterclass when people are talking about how do we approach someone and what do we say to them and what do we do to them and what, you know, there is something in in the fact that you were working with traumatized children, right? So that for people who don't know when children are really young and they are deep in trauma, what they need is to be unconditionally loved. And so what when when you begin to sort of rehabilitate their trauma, they attach to you in these really profound ways. And so when you yourself are needing the kinds of hugs and the sort of love, it's not average. It's It's got more underneath it, right? So so the fact that that's where you were, it feels almost, you know, maybe you could have been working with like shelter dogs and it would have been the same. You know what I mean? Like just a very basic physical contact kind of love on you. But the part to me that feels so important to stress we use these words like resilient, you know, how, how are you so resilient in this terrible, you know, experience that you went through? And when I ask people this question, the answer that is always like, and I'm so grateful that's the way that it was, is one that included flexibility. Yes. Flexibility. That's it. You know what? We need to co-create the new life plan, the new work plan, the new plan for tomorrow, the new plan for six hours from now, the new plan for my education. It has to be flexible. And so anytime somebody says like, well, I'm really sorry, but you're going to have to go to that annual meeting in three weeks, you know, too bad. It's not too bad. That person will end up quitting their job. Yes. It's not too bad. That person will end up getting really sick and end up in the hospital. It's the, the notion that we can bypass the physical, spiritual, emotional, practical reverberations of profound loss is a misnomer and a mistake. And what you are describing is everybody's approach with you was you tell us what you know about what it is that you think you need and we will be flexible that it's just a beautiful story of support yes i'm i'm glad that you highlighted that i i guess i really it came so naturally that i almost didn't realize that that's what it was the flexibility and i'm so grateful for that because i truly i probably would have quit another job that required yeah. me to come back right away or to just yeah, or if I were doing what I'm doing now, private practice and the amount of people that I see, I don't, I, I probably could not have done that. But it's the, it was the just the, those children that were being with them was healing, and they had no idea <laughs> what they were doing for me. Right, and it was reciprocal. I, I feel really sure about it. But I get that. I spent a lot of time. My first master's degree is in working with little kids, and I've spent a lot of time in therapy, sort of reflecting about like what was I looking for in working with those children and what did I need and what did they give me? I mean, you know, other than total rays of sunshine and maybe a background in teaching. Can I ask you this question? Cause we started to talk about it a little bit off mic and I, I was in private practice. I mean, God love every one of my clients who I deeply adore. I'm lucky enough to be able to work with the people I want to work with. And no one makes me work with people who aren't great matches. But when my mom died, I took six months off and I had had three children and I have long-term clients. So several of them had been on a maternity leave of a few months with me before 
but six, I mean, I, I sat with colleagues and they were like, look, you, you have, you know, you're traumatized by this. You have to stabilize the trauma. I did inpatient work to do that, which is the thing in my life I'm the most proud of. But when I came back out, there was no possibility of going back into my chair and just being like, well, sorry, we haven't seen each other for a while. Tell me about how your work is going. And my supervision team, who I've known a long time, people I collected from when I worked at Children's Hospital and in a training that I took, really special women who said, what do you need to get back in the chair? And you and I talked a little bit about this. What I needed was to be more emotionally present. I needed my story to be okay in the room. And so I came in and told my story of this is what traumatized me. This is, you know, these are the events. I did put the clock at only seven minutes. And I was like, we're not, I'm not going to take 10 minutes of your time. I always run 10 minutes over anyway. And for everyone, but one of my clients, one of my clients never came back in when I, when I sort of said, Hey, listen, I've been in an inpatient. He, he, his response was like, you are a broken person. I need a, I need a fixed person to help me. And I appreciated that. I actually wasn't totally surprised. Can you talk a little bit about what your experience has been like as a clinician holding your own personal stories and what do you share them? Do you not share them? How do you share them? How do you know when to share them? Sure. And it, it kind of went against my training. So it was difficult for me because with our psychodynamic training, we're taught not to talk about yourself, not to reveal anything about yourself. So I always had like my professors, you know, in the back of my, on my shoulders, you know, feeling that they would have been disappointed, but I needed to tell my story and I speak publicly about it, but not always. I, I started speaking about gratitude and happiness and resilience without telling my story and then something completely shifted and I decided to start with my story. And now people really pay attention and get so much more of out of what I have to say when they know I've been through it. And I'm, for some reason, I didn't start that way from the very beginning. And I'm not sure why, because when I sought therapy after my fiance died, that was a requirement. I needed to have a therapist that I knew had experienced loss and that, yeah. and that needed to know loss that not everybody feels that way, but that was a re- requirement for me. And I found a therapist who had worked at my high school a decade earlier, and I had known that her daughter passed away. Okay. And so I knew she understood grief, not just from the books, but she lived it. And she was so instrumental in my healing. And so that is what inspired me also to be sharing my story because I knew how much it meant to me as the client. So, and then it really, once I started doing that, my speaking engagements have taken off because people, the story really resonates with people, whether it's grief related to death or unfortunately right now with COVID and there's so many different types of grief, different disenfranchised grief. And it kind of speaks to everybody. I don't know anyone who hasn't been touched by grief in some way. I agree with that, but I do know a lot of people that don't realize they're grieving. So, you know, so I, and I think that's one of the things that's super unique right now, particularly, I'm not going to say post COVID, but something along those lines is that we've experienced so many losses that have gone sort of unidentified. We act like it's just fine. 
I mean, and you know, I talk about loss all day long and still I'll, somebody will say something to me and I'll be like, oh yeah, like you didn't even really have a bat mitzvah. That was like, you did that in the parking lot of your synagogue. Like we didn't even take pictures that, that the kind of losses, because there were losses of life happening, we were minimizing these other components of things. And part of the reason I asked you a minute ago about like, what were your friendships like? And what were, cause all that stuff people do, they leave their jobs. They can't go back. They can't go back. Friendships implode, relationships implode. People don't want to live in their house anymore. And so there's additional losses that end up sort of piling on. Yes. Yes. And it, unfortunately it, with my friends, even though they were tremendously supportive, it was also a time when there was so much transition, transition to a new job, moving out of town to go to graduate school, getting married and starting in a new town. So my core friend group within the months before and after his death, they were gone yeah. and, and, and they still supported me from afar and I would travel but they were not immediately available. And that was really, really hard. So, and that was the one one thing that wasn't in my favor. Yeah. And I think what happens with those friendships, you know, I think it's painful, right? So it's like, I'm already the one in pain and now people are not able to be here for me and I've invested in them and they've invested in me and, and it's causing me more pain. And like, I think sometimes what we do is we go outward with that. Like that, that person is not a good person because they are not showing up for me. And I have a lot of empathy for that because it's like, well, you got to go somewhere with the pain. It's probably better to take it outward than inward given everything that's going on. But I do also think about all the life stages. Like when you go to college, you lose friends and you gain friends. And when you get married, you lose friends and gain friends. And when you switch jobs and when you go to graduate school and when you have a baby, that is a sort of the natural churn of what happens in life. It's just brutal if you think about death as sort of like a life stage. You know, I'm going through the life stage of burying my dad. My friendships are also changing. It's just brutal that that I'm, the life stage that I'm going through is terrible and other hard things are happening at the same time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hard things were happening at the same time and also positive, beautiful things were for a period painful for me, you know, going to a, a wedding at, at, while I was grieving, yes. going to a baby christening. Th those were all, especially when I went to one in the same church that, where my fiance's funeral was. And I, oh, that was so oh. difficult. So as much as I was happy for my friends, it, it was so painful to be going through that bittersweet, right? Like the, and I, I, I think one of the things we've talked about it on this podcast before, is just like how alone you can feel in grief. And when you're going to a wedding at the church where your fiance's funeral was like, what does anyone in the world expect you to feel except also some of that sorrow, but most of the people in the room, that's not, they don't even know that about you. They're not even thinking that about you. And one of the things I tell my clients, but I really, 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 I mean, if my best friend is listening to this, she's going to be like, yeah, no, she really does this. I just reach out and let people know, like I'm walking into the church where his funeral was and I'm, I'm having the feelings like I'm in deep, deep, bittersweet right now because it happens all the time for me. The way that I miss my mom and my dad the most is when great things are happening because they 
you know, they worked really hard for my five brothers and sisters and I to get to achieve and have a good life, a life that was better than theirs. And we have been lucky to have a lot of that stuff happen. And so, you know, it was my niece's 18th birthday the other day. And I was like, oh my God, how is my mother not here for this? How does she not get to enjoy this? And so it's bittersweet. I'm so happy for my niece that she's an adult and this is great and let's have a party. And also I miss the hell out of my mom on that day. Yes, yes. And it's those celebrations and wonderful times when we can feel their absence the the most. And I'm glad that you brought that up about letting people know where you're at. And for me, it was also asking for what I needed. I, yeah. I, I had never really been much of an asker. I was always a, a giver. So that was a real challenge for me to switch roles and ask. But I, I did it while he was sick. I asked for support. I specifically told people what he needed. You know, please visit him. Please send him his like favorite, you know, dessert. Well, whatever it was, I asked and asked and asked and people showed up. But if I didn't ask, I wouldn't have been able to receive exactly what I needed. And I also let people know when I wasn't myself or the situations that were going to be difficult for me. You know, I remember that, you know, my father died on the Monday before Thanksgiving. And it was at the time in, in my life where lots of my high school friends would come home for the, that long weekend. And it happened to be the weekend of my father's wake and funeral. So every, it was like a high school reunion and a college reunion with everybody coming for Thanksgiving and for my father's totally. funeral. And, and then festivities were happening afterward. And I would have, to, I had to let people know that I was going, but I would have to make an early exit and probably not say goodbye. And please don't be offended if I just disappear repeatedly. I did that for a long time. I, yeah, I, 100%. I, I forced myself to go to these events because I had a feeling that I would feel better going than staying home, but I could only handle being there for so long and then just need to disappear without saying goodbye. Yeah. I said yes to everything. Do you want to have lunch? Do you want to have dinner? Do you want to take a walk? I said yes to everything, knowing I was probably going to cancel. And that's what I did. I mostly canceled. And so I'd say like, please keep inviting me. I really want to get there. And I think I will at some point. I just don't know when, Um, you know, please don't hate me. It, include me, but don't be offended when I back out which is really what I ended up doing. I really want to know more about your gratitude. I think some people bristle at that word now, right? That, that it's taken on this sort of like ethos to it. Like if you can just have gratitude, you won't have to have any grief, but it, like it's an antidote. And I know that you have a much deeper and sophisticated way of talking about it and using it as a tool. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I, I discovered the power of gratitude on the, the worst days during that whole experience. And it was in a simple cup of hazelnut coffee when the doctors said that there was nothing left that they could do for him. So I knew he was going to die. And I was with him every day and every night, except two nights when I went home to recuperate and rejuvenate. I was with him all the time. And I didn't know if he was going to die. I didn't know if that was the day he was going to die. And his, his functioning was so up and down. Some days he couldn't open his eyes. Other days he was a chatterbox. Like I never knew what each day was going to be so incredibly unpredictable and to that it would, it was nauseating that thing, that anxiety. But the one thing that was predictable was that I could get a cup of hazelnut coffee. And sometimes I had it twice a day would have it in the morning 
And then at 8 p.m. when all the visitors would leave and, and I was allowed to stay as his as his fiance. <clears throat> so I would enjoy that cup of coffee, wrap my hands around the, the styrofoam cup. This It was hazelnut, so the smell permeated his hospital room and made it seem less sterile. I started drinking hazelnut coffee my senior year in high school. That's how my, I would start my day with my mom. So it reminded me of being home. Mm. There's There was so much to it. Yeah. And, and that's what got me through. And I didn't realize at the time when I was 26 that what I was doing yeah. was practicing gratitude for something mm. so simple when my whole world fell apart. Mm. Only in hindsight did I realize that that was what it was all about, gratitude. So I always say that gratitude is never to ignore your emotional pain. Yeah. It doesn't go away. And we only get to feel the fullness of joy when we also allow ourselves to feel deep grief. But yeah. gratitude was one way to help me through it all, despite the pain. It's just... What it's making me think of in trauma work, we do a lot of grounding practice, which is basically, you know, if somebody is finding themselves flooded with a lot of emotion, that can feel really unsafe and it can pull them into the, into the past. They're being flooded from the smell of their their father's hospital room, or it can pull them into the future. They're terrified that something is going to happen to their child. And really the way that we know the place that really is okay is just the here and now, like you're not in your father's hospital room. Nothing is happening to your child right now. So can we be in this moment and using your five senses like taste and touch, smell, all, you know, sound, those things are instinctively grounding. So I just love this idea. Like I can smell the hazelnut coffee and, and, and similarly, those things can pull people, right? Like smelling your father's cologne when you don't expect it. I can't tell you the number. You've heard it so many times. People are like, oh my God, I was in the mall. And then my whole day fell apart because I smelled the perfume of my grandmother. But but we can actually actively and intentionally use our five senses and bringing them and and being in this moment, right? And And what I love that you just sort of said about gratitude is like, that's kind of it is just being grateful that I get this warm, get to wrap my hands around this warm cup of coffee in this moment. Right. Right. And that this moment is okay. And I'm okay in this moment. Yes. And, and then I learned to use gratitude after I had allowed myself to experience pain as a way to not get stuck there, because sometimes we're afraid of feeling stuck in that pain and that we're going to be there forever. So then I became, then I, it came to be that it was my, one of my tools to move forward after I had written, after I had journaled, after I had allowed myself to feel it was one way to move forward by thinking about what I was grateful for. And which is hard when you're in the midst of deep grief. So being grateful for everybody that showed up. And I had a visual image of all the cards that were all over his room. Oh God. And, you know, grateful for the hospital staff that let us have a party at the end of the hall. Everything. I, I think of gratitude also as a little bit like grace or forgiveness or something as this thing that like we can pursue it, but it kind of lands on us. I feel like, right? Like, like you can hope for it and move towards it and, and create practices around it. But, and this is so important in grief work, like 
you can't circumnavigate whatever the work is that will get you to the place in this authentic way, right? And and my mom died three years ago, three and a half now. And there are these moments where I will look over at a picture of her and my dad or and just be like, yeah, thanks for that, mom. Or like, oh God, you would have loved this. Like, and there it it, it does feel like this is all okay. I'm, I'm connected to you, but it's not primarily with pain in this moment. And if you had told me that eight weeks after my mother's death, there will be a moment when you will think about her with gratitude first, pain second, I would have been like, fuck off. That's never going to happen. Yes. Yes, exactly. It's, it, it switches where at some point it takes time, but there is that switch and shift and it's beautiful when it happens. And now, even though I'm crying, like I'm grateful. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm, I'm grateful that my father was my father. I'm grateful that I was there for the love of my life. And and I kind of feel, you know, in some way, like the chosen person to be with him, to cross to the other side, holding his hand. It, that was beautiful. It was, it was gut-wrenching, painful, but it was a beautiful experience that I will carry with me for the rest of my life. And it makes me appreciate love so much more. A hundred percent. And becomes the building blocks for all the gifts that you have fostered to, you know, be who you are in the profession right now. And I, again, I always find that really bittersweet. Like, I'm going, actually, after I get off the call with you, I'm going to get everything prepared because I have a TED talk about grief and loss that I'm doing on Saturday. And I'm like, you know what never would have happened in my entire life is me giving a TED talk on grief and loss. And it's really hard. It's so much harder than I ever expected. And I'm proud of myself. And I'm proud of myself for the sake of my mother and my father as well. Like they would have loved this. But I always think like, this wouldn't happen if they didn't die. And this isn't bad. Right. My life is not bad. I have right. a great life. So would I take them back, do a deal with the devil? hundred percent right now. Like, give me the contract. I'll sign it. And there's a lot to be grateful for in the gifts of what I have lived through that, you know, in the early days, I just couldn't see a way forward where there wasn't going to only be excruciating pain, dysregulation and chaos. Right, right. Yes, I can. I believe that I feel that way as well, that I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without these experiences. And I'm I'm truly grateful for that and how it's made me the person that I am, the therapist and mother and partner that I am, that I really have a greater appreciation for life, my own life, based on what I've been through. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about, I know you work with widows and that you have programs that you have put together. Can you, you know, are you, I know a woman who hikes to the bottom of the Grand Canyon with people in trauma, like tell us about what your program is about and and how people can access it if you have ones that are coming up soon. Sure. Yeah, I have a program that I call HEAL. It's an online five-week program for widows. We meet weekly online, and the framework is gratitude, where every week we practice, we learn and practice one simple idea related to gratitude, 
that's the framework. And then every day I deliver a lesson related to moving through grief through video and then a downloadable sheet that people to help them put it into action. So for example, like we talked about letting people know and what you're going through and asking for support, although we'd love for it to come our way naturally, sometimes it doesn't. But when you are vulnerable and put yourself out there and let people know what you need from them, people want to support you. So teaching that is one simple one. And, and also ways that we can connect with our loved one. The relationship doesn't end. The person might not be here in the physical world, but the relationship doesn't end. And how to maintain those continuing bonds and foster them. So those are simple things that I, not simple, they're some, they can be profound, but th these were all things that helped me. So there's 35 different things that I deliver mm. and, and teach and we connect with um, And it's, one of my most meaningful things that I do in my private practice. And the next one will be starting mid to end March. Great. We'll put that up on my platforms and in the podcast notes for anyone who's listening and wants to have access to that. And I want to say this because I've thought it a couple of times. One thing that I know about myself is the minute I'm like, oh, that sounds like bullshit. Nobody should do it. There is something in it for me. So the minute I am reacting like, oh God, what kind of a human would even do that thing? I'm probably going to be certified in that thing like 18 months from now because that, so I've learned that about myself. It's been true about me since I was a teenager. There are a couple of things that you just described that feel that way to me. So I just, I, I want to encourage other folks, other grievers who are hearing the word gratitude and thinking that sounds like some kind of bullshit to possibly move towards it and wonder if there's something in it for you. Now, you may not be like me that you're you're hearing like, oh, that sounds like something awful. Maybe it is. Maybe that's your instinct. But I do think our culture has done something with this word that has twisted it a little bit. And that when we go back to sort of, you know, the mystics where it came from and, and the tenets of Buddhism about sort of just being in the moment and being able to, we have a lot of data that that kind of practice really does help people. And so I just want to say that to anybody that's feeling a little bit skeptical. And I want to ask you this one concrete question because you said it a couple of times, which is when you ask for what you need. I am a person that even though I have been in this work for 20 years, I still have a very strong codependent part to me. And I rarely know what I need. I rarely can say concretely, it would be super helpful if you brought me food. In fact, if I said that to you and you brought me food, I might find it irritating. Can you just speak to that at all? Can you speak to what your experience is with that? Because I feel like I am not the only person out there that struggles with this. Yes, I found that for me, it was in the mostly in nature when I was able to just kind of quiet my mind and, and just allow myself to have whatever thoughts were coming and to feel my feelings, to really get in tune with that, to uncover what I needed. And most of the time that helped me. Other times people pointed something out that they noticed and then, then it became into my awareness and then I asked for it. But most of the time it came in my quiet moments, whether it was in nature, in the shower, the shower is a wonderful place to pay attention to, to what you're experiencing because we're not distracted by emails, people calling for us, like that's our private place in the shower. So I would pay attention to what came to me in those moments and what I was missing, what could really be helpful. And sometimes it was something concrete, 
leg bagels the day after the day of my father's wake when everybody was coming into town and we didn't have any food. A baton also cleaning the house because my mother knew that we were having the reception and people were coming over and I didn't want my mother to have to worry about cleaning. So sometimes it was really concrete. Other times it was asking for a hug or just to listen to me or or for a walk. So there were so many different ways for people to fulfill those needs. And I just knew that I couldn't sit back and wait for it to come my way. I had to ask for it. I love that answer. And what you gave me inside that answer that I'm going to mull on because I wrote it down. There's, I think there's a lot of, there's high value on being able to go inside and know like, oh, I need to go take a walk. And again, I feel like I'm on a, I feel like I and people that I've worked with, but I'm really just talking about myself here. I'm in a trajectory of, of, of growth, of trying to be able to go inside and understand my needs. I do better. I have a stronger no than I do a yes. I have a stronger no way than that sounds good. So I do better when someone says, do you want me to do this? Do you want me to do that? How about this? I'm going to bring that. How about I'm going to come over. I'm going to, or even just shows up at my door and says, I know you said no to lasagna, but I brought it anyway. So it that, it's an interesting thing just as the concept in grief, totally, that maybe there isn't just one way to come to asking, because I think my asking looks a lot like saying no to things or then it is saying, hey, do you think you could help me with this? When I am under a five in, in terms of like dysregulation, I do have these practices and I do have these grounding people. You know, my husband is one, I have a, my best friend, my sister who, when I'm really in trouble, I'll just send him a text. Like I'm in trouble. I I often don't even tell them when I'm in trouble, they don't even know the trouble. (laughs) They're just like, we're here. We will get to you, whatever it is, whatever the problem, you know, you have people. And that, again, I think it really does go back to sort of a codependency of like not really knowing myself and my own instincts first and really needing some time and space to sort of push away from things. And then maybe I can walk into the woods and get it. But I, but I love the idea that again, sort of like we're doing a gratitude practice, sort of like a knowing ourselves and knowing what we need is all wrapped up in that. Yes, yes. And I think part of my childhood and adolescence prepared me for that, that that is what I did, whether it was not doing well on a test or break up with a boyfriend, like whatever it was, whatever difficulty I was going through, I would go into nature, I would ski by myself. And being by myself was where I got answers and still do to this day. I, I love my solitude. I love as much as I'm a social person and love my friendships and friends and family. I need to be alone. I need that. And that's where I get answers by being alone, and particularly in nature. I love that nature is predictable with healing. It doesn't need, you don't need to do anything. And it just does magically does the work for you. And I always say, like, I felt like the mountains could contain my grief in some ways that my friends couldn't. I really get that. I've written about this. There is something, I went to the Badlands after my mom died. We cleaned out our house about a year later. It was during COVID and my family and I just decided to take a trip, which there was a lot of feedback of like, oh, that's so great for you. And in reality, I was just grieving. I just like, couldn't stop moving. 
And I'd say that to people like, I don't, you know, I'm not doing this for my kids geography. I'm doing it because I can't stop. And we went to the Badlands, which I had only ever seen like pictures of. I don't even think I'd ever seen a movie of it. And I got there and was like, oh my God, dinosaurs walked here. Like it was so vast. I mean, it just was as far as I could see. And then there was this incredible electrical storm, like in the distance. And I just thought this earth can hold what I have. Like I can lay, lay this down on this earth and, and it will be, and like, my life is a little bit small. And somehow I found that comforting in this Mm -hmm. odd way I couldn't find anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And it was also the awe in nature that helped me and still does as you're seeing beautiful things in nature, just kind of lose sense of yourself in time and space and, and is a reprieve from the grief and, and healing, but that that awe is so powerful, whether it's badlands or a beautiful spot in your backyard or something growing up, weeds growing up through a crack in the sidewalk in the city. We can find it everywhere. And connecting with that is still to this day one way that helps me heal. And just one other thing that I wanted to mention with the friends, one thing that was really instrumental for me in healing was forgiveness and forgiving the people who were not able to be there for me in the way that I needed or wanted to no fault of their own. They still loved me, but there were things about their own history and their of, of grief and dealing with emotional issues that they simply couldn't. And I needed to learn to forgive them and receive from people who came out of the woodwork that were there for me in a way that we might not have been really close. So grief does funny things with people and it brings up our biggest fear. And I could not fault anybody for not being there for me in a way that I needed and to maintain and preserve that friendship in a way that they, that they were comfortable with. I was the, felt like I, you know, I was the one hurting and needing them. That is what helped me maintain friendships and and not lose the ones that were really important to me to that I have to this day. I totally, I, I really appreciate you saying that. And I want to say for our listeners, everybody wants to forgive that nobody's sitting around like, well, I just want to really hold a grudge. The capacity at which we're able to forgive again is something that you can bring towards you by yearning for it. And there are some practices around it and it feels better with a little bit of distance when you are not soaking wet, full contact grief, early grief is physical more than it is anything else. And, you know, I even had the meta of like understanding that I was probably overreacting to how people were showing up or not showing up and not being able to stop it. So like just, you know, having an insight doesn't make you more capable or able, but I really appreciate what you're saying, which is at some point, again, you can let that pain go too, which is just such an incredibly hopeful, extraordinary thing to say, which is in the moment, it's going to feel like this. And at some point down the line, it doesn't mean you have to lose all your friendships. It might mean you have a period or a time where you guys can't be close or they are not the people that show up. And there is a possibility that will feel painful for the rest of your life. It's also possible that that will feel okay one day. Yes. Yes. And that's so hopeful because I think that pain of losing friends is one that I hear about all the time. 
yes and and it was in my best interest to forgive to to preserve that the friendships that meant a lot to me and to not take it personally which is another thing that's just a daily practice every day not taking things personally and understanding that what other people are going through and what they say and do has nothing to do with me and is all about them but it that you know that's something i work on daily that's me not too. <laughs> It's never a one and done deal daily still, but, and it helped me then to, to not take the absence personally that really it was about them and to forgive that. And sometimes that work looks like taking it personally first, telling yourself the whole story, right? When people talk about like, well, how do you grieve? And what do you mean about showing up for your feelings? And how do you, it's like just having them not assuming that they're necessarily true or real or good or bad, but just whatever emotions you're having that drive whatever feelings you're having to say things like my children are the worst children that have ever, you know, which is something I said to my sister this weekend, like, I don't even like them. They're the worst children. Why did I get the worst? And this morning I'm looking at my daughter as I'm driving her to school and I'm like, oh my God, I'm just so lucky to be your mom. I can't believe this. That if we can trust that the way that we feel about something in this moment is not a permanent conviction that we're going to have for the rest of our lives, we can move through. And that person can be the person who disappointed us the most we have ever been disappointed and hurt. And I just kind of understand that they couldn't show up. And that doesn't make them a terrible person. That just makes them someone who couldn't show up. And I love them for so many other reasons, but you can't start with forgiveness. And I think that's the thing that, well, I mean, maybe you can, maybe you are that person, but I think a lot of us have to get to forgiveness and have to get to gratitude and have to get to, and that's okay. That, I mean, that's the process. That's the not being afraid of whatever it is and assuming if I can let myself be in the dark and the hard and the heavy, there is light on the other side. Right, right. And it's so hard to trust that. It's so hard. But once you get a glimmer of it by doing the grief work, and it really can feel like heavy work, it you feel good and you trust that it works and yeah. motivates you to do it even more. Right. So I'm going to extend the invitation again to anyone who heard about Peggy's class and thought, I don't know if that's right for me. Go and check it out. Go look at it be in touch with her, get to learn a little bit more, because I do think, you know, you're showing up as a survivor of compound loss at a really young age and with a big smile on your face, someone who's able to cry and talk through the tears without any, you know, other activation or shame or feeling about it, just like carrying grief and loss as a part of who you are. And I, you know, that is what we need to understand is what we do as grievers is it doesn't have to take over our whole lives, but we also can't pretend it's not a part of our life. And I'm excited about your program because you've been grieving for a long time and you have an amazing life that you are using your skills and desire to help and your traumatic experience. You've turned that into something that is like a lighthouse and a guide for the rest of us, which is just extraordinary. This has been such an amazing conversation. I'm really, really 
delighted that we have gotten in touch with each other. I am going to direct everybody to your website, which will be in the show notes so that they can. I've never seen so many public speaking. You know, you, you're out there in the world talking about your work and, and, you know, talking about your own story so that other people can connect and say me too. And you're giving us these courses that people can, and lots of writing and books out there. So for people who are confused, how do they get to you? What's the best way for them to be in touch? Sure. The best way is just through my website, drpeggydelong.com. And then my email address, peggy at drpeggydelong.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for this hour. This has been really, I was in a terrible mood and had a conversation with my best friend and was like, I don't think I'm going to make it through today. I think, cause I'm really anxious about going to give this talk. And I feel just very spiritually centered after this conversation. It, it, this was a real personal gift to me. So I oh, am thank you, Megan. very, very grateful. I'm grateful for your work. I'm grateful for this conversation and I hope we stay in touch. I want to yes. hear more. Me too. Thank you so much, Megan. You're welcome. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.